Man, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and um, been going through this text. Great chapter, eh? It's a fun one. And uh, we're at verse 35, and going to pick up there. Over the last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, we've seen that the, the resurrection is really at the heart of the gospel message. It's central to uh, that which the early apo- apostles proclaimed regarding Jesus Christ. Um, and it's no exaggeration to say that uh, the gospel hangs on the fact of the resurrection. And without it, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. And so it's so important and crucial to the message of the gospel. And so Paul, as he began to talk to the Corinthians, they were wrestling through this issue of what happens after you die. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't know what it meant for them. Paul established, he began with them by establishing the facts of the gospel. And he reminded the church of that which they, they had received. And he said, uh, Christ died for sinners. Uh, he was buried. And he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And the apostle, as he moved from, uh, Paul, as he moved from the facts about the gospel, we saw, and we talked about this last week, that, that he proclaimed the gospel, that, it, that it's comprehensive in, it, in its work, that, that um, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has implications for you and I. And we left off at verse 33 and 34 and with this idea that not, not only are, are we raised from the dead spiritually, but God has a plan for us physically. That there is a plan for our body. And where we left off in verse 33 and 34 is where Paul issued this challenge to the Corinthian church. And it's the same challenge for us. And it's this, wake up. Don't be asleep already. Um, You're not physically dead yet. Thank the Lord. I I hope not this morning. You're here, right? Everybody's here. Um, Wake up. Don't be asleep already. Don't live like those who are spiritually dead. Live with a sense of accountability is kind of where we left off. We're going to stand before God, each one of us. And how we live in, the, in our lives, how we live in this physical body, affects, affects eternity. And so in verse 33, Paul gave this suggestion or this teaching to separate yourself from those who do not believe in the resurrection. Don't hang out with them. Be careful the friends you choose. You know, gravitate towards godly men and godly women. And the challenge was issued that there are, there are moral and eternal implications to the reality of the resurrection. I have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead if I'm to have eternal life. And if I believe it, it has to affect the way that I live. It has to affect the outworking of my life. If my heart has changed, then it affects how I lived. And Paul's teaching as we've been going through this, is, it's pretty effective. I mean, if you, if you go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you have any mental reservations to the concept of the resurrection from the dead or you have mental reservations to the reality of Jesus Christ being uh, raised from the dead, if you take time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you examine what Paul says, you examine what he teaches. He does a very good job of disarming arguments that human beings set up to argue the facts of the resurrection. And so, you know, mental reservations can be disarmed. But human beings also 
resist um, the resurrection morally. They, they have, you know, moral resistance to the fact of the resurrection because they say, wow, if this is real, if it's true, then it means, as Paul says, it's going to affect how I live. There has, to be, there has to be change. And if I don't want to change the way I live, if I, don't wanna, if I want my lifestyle to go on exactly as it is, I've got to find arguments that I can set up against the reality of the resurrection. Now Paul sought to pull down these arguments and the Greek thinking and their concepts of life and death. And, uh, but he's going to address here a loophole that people think in their minds Regarding the resurrection. Oh yeah, Paul, well, you know, and he anticipates this next one. He says this in verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So here, here's the argument. Oh yeah, the resurrection. Like, let's talk reality here. How does that happen? Two questions. With what kind of body do they come? Now, in Greek philosophy and the thinking of the Corinthians and in their culture and Really, North American culture is mainly Greek in its thinking in regards to life and death. Um, and it did not allow, their, their thinking, their philosophy, their culture did not allow for the resurrection of the dead. In their minds, it was an impossibility for the simple reason that a body turns to dust when you put it in the ground. It's one thing to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because his body was laying there for three days, Okay. And then he was raised from the dead. But what about the person who's been in the ground for 10 years, for 100 years, for 1,000 years? And their body is returned to the dust. What about the person who the, the elements and the atoms and everything that they're made up out of has long dispersed? How do you raise that body from the dead? You know, when the founder of Rhode Island, his name was Roger Williams, was disinterred and, and they dug up his body, it was discovered that the roots of an apple tree had gone through the coffin. And, you know, apple trees produce apples, and people take apples, and they eat apples. <laughs> and, you know, on a certain level, those who ate apples partook of his body almost, you know. Almost like... And, and the question that's kind of quite humorous when you think about it, but that the human mind formulates, we all think this way, in our resistance to the reality of the resurrection is like, well, how do you claim the various elements, you know, from Rhode Island to the apple to the man to the da, 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 and all the way down hundreds of years later. And at the resurrection, who will claim the various elements? How can a body be raised when the elements have been reused? <laughs> They've been recycled. When it is returned to the dust of the earth from which it came. Um, you know, it's funny, I got, I got in a conversation this morning. Uh, somebody said to me, I went to a Catholic funeral yesterday. Just going to throw this out there. And they said, the body of the person that they were remembering at the funeral was cremated, and so they only got half a funeral. I thought, wow, I didn't know that the Catholics did that because they took the body, the, the church won't honor that because the body was taken and it was burned. And, you know, I, I remember a time, I've been in conversations, you know, growing up in the church, and I, I remember having conversations with different people where there was a time when believers were really hung up, and maybe some still are, on the idea of creation because they wondered, well, what does that mean at the resurrection, you know? My mom says, spread my ashes at Bonnybrook. Really? Once the waves have washed everything away and around, can, can Jesus really raise her from the dead? <laughs> 
You know, what about the body that's consumed in a fire? What about the martyr burned at the stake? What about the body lost at sea? How are the dead raised is the question. And with what kind of body do they come? And Paul says this in verse 36. You foolish person. Fools, he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You foolish person. That he Paul says that's a foolish question. Okay, so we have to pull that argument down in our minds that resists the reality of resurrection and recognize that that is a foolish question. Because the answer is obvious. Who raises the dead? God does, that's who. God raises the dead. And Paul said to King Agrippa, you remember in Acts chapter 26, when Paul had proclaimed the message of the gospel to Agrippa, he said to him, he said, why, why do you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Why, why should that sound foolish to you? And I mean, the reality is, is from dust we came and to dust we return and God made man from dust once and he can certainly make him from dust a second time. And the, Paul, the, the point that Paul made is important. He says this, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what he is saying is this, and this is important regarding resurrection. The resurrection is not a reconstruction. This isn't a puzzle. Put it together, there it is. The resurrection is not a reconstruction. The Bible does not teach that at the resurrection, God will put all the pieces back together again and like Humpty Dumpty. He sat on a wall and he had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. That's not God. Uh, we're, We're not, you know, all the pieces of our former bodies put together. No, no, no. The resurrection is not a reconstruction. There will be a certain continuity. We'll talk about this as we go through this text. It will be our body, but it's not the same body. And it's pretty hard to explain such a miracle as the resurrection. So Paul here He goes on and he's going to use three analogies to help us understand and bring some clarity. The first is seed. He says this, seeds. Verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Interesting, when you consider seeds, when you think about seeds and what they do, Resurrection is really around us all the time, every day, everywhere. It's happening. When you sow a seed in the ground, this past spring, you know, Isabella and I went and uh, actually we didn't sow seeds. We bought, we cheated. And we bought the little starter plants. But we sowed them and put them into the ground. And when you, when you sow a seed in the ground and you keep the ground moist and you, you, uh, put the pot in the sun or plant it in a certain area, uh, it begins to grow. And I, I, you know, I kind of wanted to say there in my mind, uh, we grew peas, but the reality is we didn't grow anything. We just put it in the ground and the peas came forth. We planted and um, when you plant, the same seed that you put in the ground is not what you expect to come forth from the soil. We expected as we put those little plants in the ground, we expected something beautiful, something edible to come from the few little plants that we put down there. And, and so we sowed them, and we had snow peas, and we had sugar peas most of the summer, and they were delicious. 
And, um, you know, there was a continuity between what went into the ground and what came out of the ground, what we harvested, but there was a difference between the seed and the fruit that the seed produced. It was an extreme difference, actually. I mean, you think of seed and what it produces. The difference is extreme, but it's not unexpected. You expect it to be very different. You know, under the stairs at our house, we have uh, dahlia bulbs. I always, I always want to trip over that flower name. A friend of ours gave us tons of these bulbs a number of years back, and they're the most bizarre-looking things. Like, have you ever planted those things? It's like, a twisted hand with things going this way and that way and they're totally ugly. Like they're totally ugly and dirty and you keep them in a dark place all winter long inside the house and then you put them in the ground and you should not expect anything beautiful to come from these bulbs and yet what comes up? Variety of color, variety of flower, no two flowers are alike. Um, it could only take the design and and the work of a creator to bring forth such beauty. And so resurrection is around us all the time if we'll look. And so Paul says seeds. It's a picture of that. His second analogy is the flesh. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So you know... I love this verse because no matter what evolutionary theory claims, uh, Paul knew that the cell structure of different kinds of animals and species is different. You can't breed a fish with a dog. We know that. Uh, no one, you know, can breed various species or kinds together indiscriminately and create whatever they want. I mean, you can breed a big dog and a little dog, and what do you get? A dog. And God has made... Uh, the nature of man one way, Paul says, the nature of animals one way, the nature of birds one way, the nature of fish one way. You know, you think about animals. All animals grow their covering from within. Human beings, we clothe ourselves with clothes. I don't grow a covering. You know, I don't have fur. <sighs> Might have a hairy back, but that doesn't count. Okay? <laughs> that doesn't count. And, Animals grow fur. But you know, the funny thing is I've yet to come home to my house and find our little dog Molly sitting in the rocking chair knitting herself a sweater. <laughs> Why? Because she doesn't need one because God designed her with fur. Now someone should tell that to my wife and my daughter because they go out and they buy little clothes once in a while for the dog. <laughs> and I think it's ridiculous to put a sweater on my dog. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> and... You know, once in a while, Isabella will take our little dog, Molly. You know, if you've seen her, she's seven pounds, and she'll take some piece of baby clothing and put the baby clothing on Molly. And my dog's walking around in a tutu with pigtails in her hair. And the thing is pathetic. Like, her head is hanging, and she's totally shamed, <laughs> humiliated, totally self-conscious. Because she's a dog, and God gave her a covering, and she doesn't need people to put clothes on her. So let's move on before I rant because there's something weird going on in our culture. <laughs> God made birds with a certain kind of flesh, suitable for their environment. They travel in the sky. They grow feathers so that they can fly. So they can, you know, have transportation, the transportation of flight. Birds grow feathers. 
There was a time, if you wanted to torture a human being, what did you do? You tarred and feathered them. Birds have feathers, not human beings. Fish, they're created to live under the water, so God has designed them accordingly. God didn't give us gills. We get our oxygen from the air. Fish take it from the water. I mean, there's different kinds of flesh, Paul says. And it's awesome. I mean, well, we can, we're going to talk a little bit about the resurrection body, but man, we don't know what it means in the future. I assume that we'll get to fly like birds. We won't have to have feathers. And I won't have to grow fur, but you know, there'll be something that comes from within that covers us, righteousness. Maybe we'll get to explore the seas. So the seeds, the animal bodies, Paul says heavenly bodies. Look at verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So he says not only are there earthly bodies, terrestrial, uh, there are heavenly bodies, celestial, and they differ from one another. In fact, the heavenly bodies differ from one another even as far as your eyes concerned. You know, you look out at the, a beautiful night like we'll probably have tonight. The moon has been so amazing this past week, eh, on these clear cold nights. I've just been enjoying it every day uh, where it's been hanging in the sky. When I get up, I'm like, oh, wow, look at the moon. Different stars shine at different you know, brightness, and you can see planets with your naked eye, and even more so with a pair of binoculars or a telescope. And, and what Paul is suggesting here is that, that believers may differ from one another in terms of glory in eternity. We'll all have glorified bodies. We'll, we'll all be like the stars, but there'll be varying degrees of, of glory based on reward, on faithfulness, on sacrifice for the kingdom, and the things that we've done here on earth. And so Paul gives these three analogies. And I would say this, I mean, they don't make everything clear. There's some mystery to resurrection here. Uh, but it certainly satisfies some of our questions when we think about it. God will give us a body that's suited for eternity. I mean, right now, this, this old corrupt thing can't make it in eternity. God will give you and I a body that is suited for eternity. And it'll be unlike this body, you know? With a quality of glory like the, the dahlia, from a bulb to a beautiful flower. And in our new bodies, we will serve God and we will honor Him and we will glorify Him for all eternity. And so in verse 42, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so Paul gives four contrasts between the present body but, and the resurrected body, the body that we will have in eternity, perishable, the one here, imperishable, the one in eternity. Sown in dishonor here, sown in glory there. Sown in weakness here, raised in power there. Sown in natural body, 
raise the spiritual body. You know, I just think about the word perishable. The effects, the passages of time as we get closer to death and the way that it affects our bodies. That will be no more. We will be raised imperishable. There's going to be no expiry date on the new body. The scriptures even give us, you know, a few insights into the glorified body and, and, and what that was like. You know, Moses' face, think about Moses, in the presence of God, 40 days up on top of Mount Sinai. His face shone with the presence of God when he came down from the mountains. There was something different about his countenance. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that story? Man, just, he was transformed. He underwent a metamorphosis in front of his disciples as he stood there with Moses and Elijah. And the language of the gospel suggests that it wasn't that Jesus was reflecting something, but something was radiating out of him that had been hidden before. It says his, his, his clothes shone like lightning, like brighter than anything anyone could ever wash them. And the gospels are, are telling us that it was something coming out of Jesus, not something that was being affected upon him. He was transfigured before them. Or how about the countenance of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he looked into heaven and was stoned and there was something about his countenance that people could see. The glorified body. You know, one of the heresies surrounding the idea of a resurrection, the resurrection body, it's one of the first heresies that the, that the church dealt with is the suggestion that it's not physical. It's not a physical resurrection. You know, certainly uh, it's a different body, but, but those who don't believe, like the Jehovah Witnesses, that physical resurrection takes place, oft, often misread this verse right here. Sown a natural body, raised the spiritual body. And the problem is where they place their emphasis as they read that scripture. They place their emphasis on the words natural and the words spiritual. And what they miss is that those words are adjectives describing a noun. The noun is always greater. Earth, the earthly body is one that is uh, a body motivated and controlled by earthly desires. And the spiritual body is one that is animated by the Spirit of God. It exists for spiritual purposes rather than earthly purposes. And so when we read those words, an earthly body and a spiritual body, we have to see that they are adjectives describing what animates the body, the earthly body and the spiritual body. And there's a difference after the resurrection of what will animate this body. It will be spirit. It will be spirit that animates it. Look at verse 45. Paul says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We chatted about this last week. Only two men ever born alive. Adam and Jesus. The first man and the last Adam. All others have been born spiritually dead. I was born spiritually dead. John chapter 3, Jesus, you know, met Nicodemus. That famous encounter, we know about it. And Jesus and Nicodemus were talking. 
And Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you that unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, a Pharisee who had secretly come to Jesus. He said, he knew the scriptures. He said, how can a man be born again? Can, can he enter his mother's womb a second time? Because Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about physical birth. And then Jesus revealed to him, he wasn't speaking about physical birth, he was speaking about spiritual birth. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We must be born again. Spiritually. And the facts of the gospel are that Christ died for sinners. That he was buried. After three days he was raised from the dead. And the right response to the message of the gospel when we find out that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still yet in our sins is that we respond to him in repentance. That we change our mind in regards to our sin. We make a decision that we are going to uh, turn from our sin. We determine that rather than living for sin, we will live for God. And in repentance from sin and in faith to Jesus Christ, we make a personal commitment to trust and obey the risen Jesus and we invite him to be the Lord of our life and he gives us the gift of us salvation, eternal life. Jesus said a man must be born again, born of the Spirit. It's interesting that he also said you have to be born of the water. Did you see that in there? Did you hear that? Baptism and water, you know, transfers the facts of the gospel in, into our lives. We're baptized into the death of Jesus. We're buried in the water with him. Symbolically, we're raised with him to live a new life. And baptism is not about the washing of the body, but it's a, it's a picture of the cleansing of the conscience that Jesus washes us clean as we come to him. He sets us free from the past. We're saved by the resurrection of Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. As we enter the waters of baptism, it's a picture of them being washed away. And so God cleanses our past. Baptism in the water. He takes care of the past. But you know what's awesome about what the Lord does for us? Is he also gives us power to live for him in the future. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Where we're filled with the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Our mortal bodies are revitalized by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, last week we looked at this a little bit. You remember that Jesus breathed on his disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And not only did the Holy Spirit indwell them, but he came upon them at Pentecost and empowered them and they were clothed and endued with power from on high when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they had power to proclaim the gospel. And so here we are, you know, we live in these bodies, perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown in the natural, and yet the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to live like Jesus Christ. To live for him, to live in him, to live with him. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All because of what Jesus did for us. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, check that out. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Oh, there's so much to the resurrection. The word image just struck me this week as it was focused on this text. Image. We know we're image bearers. We're made in the image of God. And we bear the image of the first Adam. Unfortunately, his sin. But as we come to Christ and we're made new, we are told here that we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's why we, we saw this last week. Jesus is the first fruits. We will follow in the same pattern and we will be raised from the dead. And we must realize and not be fools that the, the act of resurrection is done by God himself. I mean, you read the scriptures, you read the New Testament, and it's not very often that it says that Jesus rose. It says Jesus was raised by God. That is the, the main theme, that God did the raising. And we saw that Jesus Christ is the first fruit of those raised from the dead. There were others resuscitated. Lazarus, the widow's son from Nain, Jairus, his daughter, Dorcas, the different folks in the New Testament. Um, they were resuscitated, but only Jesus Christ was resurrected. And I would say this. That was an act of creation. We looked a little bit at Genesis chapter 1 last week. And what we need to recognize about the resurrection is the resurrection is an action of creation the Father has made. He's the start of a new creation. Last week we saw that Jesus was the first fruit of those raised from the dead. Uh, and God began this work of new creation in Christ and God has begun that work of new creation in you and I when we were born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, that great verse that probably all of us know, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And the resurrection of Jesus was an act of creation, the first fruits of a whole new world. Whole new world. Little mermaid. Laden? Is that what it is? Sorry. That's awesome. <laughs> Think about Jesus' body. Think about the resurrected body of Jesus. It was a real, physical, material body. People touched him. He said, touch me and see. He ate food on a number of occasions. He ate with his disciples. 
It seems when you read the gospel accounts that he looked different, but he sounded the same. You know, there was times when like Mary Magdalene came, she didn't immediately recognize him until he spoke. And then she was like, it's Jesus. So he didn't necessarily look the same at first glance, but he sounded the same. And when we read about him in the gospels, we discover that he was not subject to the same physical laws of nature that his earthly body once had been. You know, there's this sense that he came through walls or he went through doors. He appeared, he disappeared. He, I don't know, he traveled from Jerusalem to, uh, to Galilee after he'd been raised from the dead, but I have a suspicion he didn't walk. He probably flew. And he didn't need feathers. <laughs> In fact, you know, when we read about the resurrection of Jesus, we, we come to recognize that the stone was rolled away from the entrance of the tomb not to let Jesus out. Jesus didn't need to be let out. His body was changed. The stone was rolled away to let the witnesses in so that they would see that he was no longer there and he'd been raised from the dead. Jesus, after the resurrection, wasn't subject to the law of gravity. I mean, he stood on the Mount of Olives. We talked about the Mount of Olives last week that where he ascended into heaven and he'll return to that same place. He stood there, he talked to his disciples and then up he went, right into heaven until he disappeared into the clouds. No longer subject to gravity. His body was different. Imperishable, glorious, powerful, a spiritual body. I mean, think about it. And let's have some fun here. It's pretty awesome. What day of the week was Jesus raised from the dead? What day? Not Wednesday. Sunday, right? Scriptures are totally clear. The scriptures say it was the first day of the week. There's no doubt about it. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. It was a Sunday. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you remember, if you were here last week, um, you recall, if you weren't, you might want to go check it out on our church website and listen to the message. Day 1, first day of the week, which we call Sunday, was God's first work day. Remember what God did on day one in creation? He created, bara, the heavens and the earth. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. God creates Adam, bara, and he makes him a living soul, a living being, that Hebrew word nefesh. And on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. He rested. Each day the scripture says, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, he looked upon his creation and he said, it is good. And when he made man, he looked upon his creation and he said, it is very good. And then God rested on the seventh day. And that's why God commanded the children of Israel, the Jewish people, his, his royal nation, that the seventh day, Saturday, be a day of rest. That it be a day of rest, that it be a day of recuperation, that they rest from their labors and that they worship. And so they were commanded, work for six days, rest on the seventh. Just as God worked for the first six days, and he rested on the seventh. And so when we think of 
the Father giving Jesus a new body, raising Jesus from the dead, we have to recognize that it was God's very first act of creation since he had done the work of creating the universe. He had rested for hundreds of years. You know, helping his people, working with them, keeping them safe, protecting them, but he had not created for hundreds of years. Maintained what he had created. And what we should recognize is that Jesus, in Jesus being raised from the dead, we have to recognize that the Father has finished his rest. He has gone back to work. The second week of creation has been born. You know, the early church actually called Sunday the eighth day. The eighth day. The very first part of the old creation that was to be made new, the old creation that had been corrupted by sin, the very first part of it that was to be made new was the body of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And just as his old body passed away, the scripture says one day heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, the scripture says. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the beginning of the work of God that will change the entire universe. In the first week of creation, God began with the heavens and the earth and he finished with that very good act of creating Adam and then he rested. But in God's next work of creation, the order is reversed. God began with the resurrection of Jesus and he will finish with the recreation of the universe. Peter talks about it. It will be made new with fire. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Oh, my friends, when the scripture said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul's not fooling around. If anyone is in new in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and Christ is the first fruits. And so Paul says this in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You know, there's that great story after the resurrection of Jesus and we looked at it in John last week about the disciples being locked up in that room and for fear of the Jews, they were hiding there. Luke tells the same account. He gives some different details. And he talks about them hiding in there and them talking about these things. And in fact, it was after Jesus had appeared to some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and walked with them. And so they were back in Jerusalem. They're locked up in this room, Luke 24. They're hiding in this place. They're discussing these things and whoo, Jesus appears in their midst. And he says, peace be with you. And the scripture says they were startled. They were frightened, which I think we would be, right? And he said to them, why, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands and feet. 
Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said these things, he showed them his hands and their feet. And it says they, they still disbelieved for joy. I mean, they were so overwhelmed with joy, there was this tinge of disbelief, and they were marveling. And then Jesus said, have you got anything to eat? And he took food, and he ate it, and they gave him a piece, the scripture says, of fish, and he took it before them, and he ate them. Uh, look, Paul says, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you see that there? And Jesus says something very interesting about himself when he appears to the disciples. He says, a ghost does not have flesh and not blood, flesh and bone as you see I have. And I think it's safe to say that the resurrected body of Jesus Christ is not animated by blood. His blood was poured out for my sin on the cross. His blood was poured out for your sin on the cross. His body is not animated by life. The, the scripture tells us the life is in the blood in the Old Testament. That's why sacrifice was made for the shedding of blood, for the forgiveness of sins. And the earthly body, earthly bodies are animated by blood. There's life in the blood, flesh and blood. But Christ raised from the dead is a spiritual body animated by the spirit. There's not a need for blood. It's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? And he says to his disciples, Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bone, as you see I have. It's even interesting if we go back to the Genesis account, when God presents Eve to Adam, he says of Eve, he doesn't say she's my flesh and blood. What does he say? She's my flesh and bone. I don't know what that means about the body of Adam prior to the fall, but it's interesting. Questions about the resurrection. And it's natural that we would ask this question. Well, okay. Jesus comes, the dead are raised. What about those who are still alive on the earth when he comes? And that's where Paul goes next, verse 51. What about those who are alive at Christ's coming for his church? Behold. I love that word, man. In the scripture, that's an important word. That means stop and think about this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Look, when the scripture says, I'll tell you a mystery, and it's in the New Testament, it means this. It's, this is not meant to be hidden. This is something that's open. It's an open mystery. It's been revealed um, to those who are in Christ. It might be hidden from the world, but this is open to those who are in Jesus Christ. This is for you to explore and discover and to think about. And Paul says this. If you're alive when Jesus comes, something's going to happen. You're going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. That's not, that's not a blink of an eye. It's the twinkle of an eye. You know, and you look in somebody's eye, and you just see that little sparkle for a second? That quick, man. We shall be changed. It's called the rapture. Where we're caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air. And, and 
The scripture, I really believe, teaches a, that that will happen prior to the great tribulation, pre-trib. And, you know, one of the arguments that people use against that is this word right here that this will happen at the last trumpet. And what we have to understand here is, well, actually, 1 Corinthians, you know, 1 Corinthians is one of the first books written in the New Testament. It's one of the very early writings. What was the last one? You recall? should be obvious. Revelation. The book of Revelation was the very last one written. 1 Corinthians was likely written before any of the Gospels were, were penned. The last trumpet Paul talks about here. It is a mistake to connect the last trumpet that Paul talks about with the seven trumpets of Revelation. Uh, when you look at the trumpets in Revelation that are being blown during periods of the tribulation and the last one that's blown, the seventh trumpet, happens at the end of the tribulation and there is an announcement of victory. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Lord. And Jesus comes. Um, all throughout Revelation, what you read is that there are angels who blow those trumpets. But this announcement, this last trumpet corresponds with 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And let me read it to you. It says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This trumpet here, the last trumpet, is called the trumpet of God in Thessalonians. It is blown, we see, by, you know, the archangel. There's only one it's not blown just by any old angel. It's blown by the archangel and it's the last trumpet call for the church. N not for all of God's historical work in the world and everything that he's working in the last days. It's the last trumpet call for the church. It's interesting that we even read in the start of Revelation that when, when uh, John has his vision of the Lord, he says that as when he saw the Lamb, his voice was like a trumpet. There'll be other trumpet blasts, but this is the last one for the church. Should Jesus come? Wouldn't it be awesome if it was today? Beautiful day. Be a nice view on the way up there. If Jesus should come today and we are alive, we will be caught up and we will meet him in the air and we will be transformed in the twinkle of an eye in a moment. And if we're dead and we're buried in the ground, we will be resurrected and changed and transformed. He says in verse 53, go through this last part just really quick. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You know, aren't you thankful that in Jesus Christ, we have victory over death, my friends? And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus said to his disciples, because I live, you also shall live. 
And we read here that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. The, the law reveals our sin. That's what it's about. It, it, point, it points us to the fact that we fall short of the glory of God. And yet, praise God, Jesus bore our sins on the cross. It's through him that we have victory. It's through him that we share in his victory. Paul says that in verse 57. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, we are victorious over death. Through Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin. And he wraps up in verse 58 and he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want to read that verse again. Therefore, my brothers, this is the application. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. That word vain strikes me because you remember Maybe if you were here last week that, that Paul said this, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is vain. Your labor is vain. It, none of it matters. But the reality is, is Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so when we labor for God, we do not labor in vain. The resurrection of the dead Rapture for the living Christian when, when Christ comes. This is the victory that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. This is victory to victory. I mean, however your week went, I, I get it, man. We all have rough weeks. But I'll tell you what this, I'll tell you this, your hope, your future, it's victory to victory in Christ. But I would say this too at the same time. For those of you who don't know Jesus, solemnly, I've got to warn you, death is not your friend. D death is not in your DNA. Death is not God's design for you. Death is the result of sin. Death is not your friend. And if you'll look to Jesus Christ, you need to know it's Jesus fulfilled the law for you. Jesus on the cross bore in his body the sins of mankind. He bore your sins. He took the guilt of your sin in his own body and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. He let it all out. And if you'll humble your heart before him, if you'll surrender your life to him, if in repentance you'll say, Jesus, I want to turn from my sin and I want to in faith believe that you are Lord and invite you to come and be the Lord of my life. The promise that Jesus gave his disciples will be your promise. Because I live, you also shall live. Repentance from sin and faith in his name. Would you guys stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.